Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Just a weekly checkup. How's your 60-day challenge going? I know, pretty rough, isn't it? Jesus, you're not worth it. I'm just, oh, you're the one that piped up. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Anyway, no, seriously, it is a challenge to consistently fellowship with God. It shouldn't be, but let's be honest. We have so many things in the world that demand our attention that vie for our attentions, that it's difficult. If you've got an alarm on your phone like I do, every hour on the hour saying takes 60 seconds. Is it always convenient? As like I said last week, to take 60 seconds just to say, Lord, thank you for this next hour. And thank you for the previous hour that you gave me. I welcome you into this next hour, and I pray that you would open my eyes to see what you see, my ears to hear what you hear, so that I can be what you need me to be, to whom you need me to be it in this next hour. That's as simple as that, but some reason it is challenging. I continue to stress the importance, stay focused. If you've missed an hour, it's okay. Maybe you've missed a day. It's okay. The enemy wants you to stay off the horse, if you will. He doesn't want you to get back on and continue to head in a direction. We are our world, we are the worst enemies of ourselves when we mess up. Aren't we? Would you agree with that? Because we tell ourselves that other people think certain things about us that they might not even be thinking, but we think it about us. And so our perceptions are that we are the world's worst person. And so we beat ourselves up. When we mess up, when we don't measure up, but God wants us to step up when those situations happen, not to back down. All right. Shameless plug for 60 days. We're encroaching upon Easter. March the 31st, Easter Sunday, will end our 60-day challenge, but I hope it sets up for you a habit of welcoming God into every aspect and every hour of your day, that it becomes more than just a habit. It becomes such an ingrained part of who you are in relationship to him that it is a transforming relationship for you. Now, Where are we going in our series today? We're closing a series out called Breaking Bad. If I'm being honest, I have never seen an episode. I know some of you are like, what? (laughs) Then why are you using the graphic? Because I just thought it was a cool graphic. I thought the idea was pretty cool behind it. I, I, watch, I'll, I'll check it out, okay? And some of you say, don't even try. All right, I won't check it out, okay? But I want to talk, we've been talking about the consequences of sin. Did you know sin messed everything up? Do you know the problems you face today are a result of sin entering the world? 
Sometimes they're a fault of your own sin, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes you've not done anything to warrant the troubles that face you. Sometimes it's just you've been dealt a bad hand. And you ask yourself, well, what did I do to deserve this? And the reality is, you may not have done anything to deserve that specific thing that you're facing or the challenge that you're being confronted with. You just may have been dealt a bad hand. I want to talk to you today about a different situation, however. Somebody who intentionally did something that they knew they shouldn't have done. But I also want to look at the goodness of God in spite of that horrible decision this person made. As we look at Genesis 4, it won't go on the screen just yet, but Genesis 4, we see the famous story of Cain and Abel. Even if you've never been a part of the church, my guess is you've heard of Cain and Abel. And we're going to look at that story today, but from a different perspective than we've looked at it before. We're going to look at evil personified. Now, we saw evil personified last week, if you were a part of the message or listened or watched the message from last week, when the serpent was in the garden tempting who would be Eve. She was just known as the woman and the man before she was given that name. They were tempted. They partook of the fruit. They, in essence, personified that evil by doing that which God said not to do. But now evil, as often it does doesn't just stay in one place. It begins to manifest in greater ways if it's not dealt with. Did you know that? If you don't deal with sin in your life, it compounds. This is the only thing that truly compounds with interest on a regular basis unless you allow the Lord to rectify and deal with the sin in your life. In his book entitled, God is Closer Than You Think, author and pastor John Ortberg writes this. He was hailed as one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. The word genius gets thrown around pretty loosely, but in this case, it was an understatement. His thesis on the dynamics of human conflict would revolutionize economic theory and eventually win him the Nobel Prize. He did his work at an age when many people are still trying to figure out how to move away from mom and dad and make it on their own. Before he was out of his 20s, he was a distinguished professor at MIT. But at the height of his career, John Nash suffered a breakdown due to schizophrenia. He once interrupted a lecture to announce that he was on the cover of Life magazine disguised as the Pope. He claimed foreign governments were communicating with him through the media, and he turned down a prestigious post at the University of Chicago because he said he was about to be named Emperor of Antarctica. And that was the beginning of a spiral for John Nash. Have you ever seen the movie, A Beautiful Mind? That's based on John Nash, starring Russell Crowe. If you haven't, it's a really good movie. I suggest you watch it. I don't commend everything in every movie that I ever recommend, but check it out. It's also based on a book by the same title. We see the characters and hear the voices that exist only in John Nash's head, unconnected to reality. They made him feel important, as if 
He were the center of the universe. They played on his darkest fears at times. When he listened to them, they destroyed his relationships. They distorted his perceptions, and they made him obsessive, irrational, and terrified. Paranoid delusion is one of the most difficult forms to treat in all of psychopathology. John Ortberg writes, when I was finishing my doctorate in clinical psychology, I worked for a time with a client who suffered full-blown paranoia. He was convinced that the FBI wiretapped his home, that his neighbors were spying on him, that strange voices were speaking directly to him through his television set. The most difficult feature, he goes on to write, of his condition was that the voices seemed absolutely real to him. To tell him that they were not real was asking you or I to distrust the person sitting next to you, that they are not real, they are not really there. He eventually got better thanks to a form of medication that wasn't available to not John Nash in the early days of his illness, which is what makes the story of John Nash so remarkable. He was actually able to learn without medication over time the art of discernment, which many of us with clear enough minds do not have. He learned to test the voices to find out which ones were false and which ones were true. Again, that's something we are not very great at doing. He learned to listen to the ones, or he learned, excuse me, he learned not to listen to the ones that led to death. He learned not to dwell on what they said. He learned not to do what they requested of him to do. And while never completely freed from his illness, Nash discovered that over time, their hold on his mind could greatly, had greatly weakened over time. He experienced, in a sense, a revolution of the mind. Nash speaks at one point in the film, A Beautiful Mind, about how, in, in a way, his battle is the battle of everyone. He says, I'm not so different from you as he's talking to a friend. We hear voices all the time. We just have to decide which ones we're gonna to listen to. The story of Cain is a tragic one, as we'll read in just a moment. Cain is told after meeting with God and giving him an offering of grain, and his brother Abel doing the same with sheep. That God accepted Abel's offering, but not his. Now when I say that, how many of you feel it like, oh, that doesn't feel right? Have you ever, and maybe you don't have siblings, but many of you do, have you ever, have, has a sibling been praised and you've, been dejected by a parent or maybe at work and you know your your co-worker who's on the same playing field as you gets praised but you've been working your tail off and you don't get the kind of praise or accolades that they do what's that feel like so some of us all of us actually could probably relate to Cain's initial gut reaction and feelings but where Cain goes off the rails 
is in taking those guttural desires, listening to the voices of death, of jealousy, of envy, and going to a place that is forbidden. So let's pick up his story. Genesis 4, starting with verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. That's pretty crazy because every time I read this, I read, I read through the scripture every year. Uh, I've produced a man. That's kind of how it comes to mind for me. I don't know why. Well, Goldern, <laughs> I've produced a guy. That's, I don't know why. I apologize if that is too way off in the weeds for you. It just gives you a little insight into this mind as I'm reading. And I get a chuckle. I shouldn't get a chuckle. But what she's actually saying is, I couldn't do this on my own. It's with God's help. God is the one who receives all the glory. He has helped me to bring forth new life. Now think, they are not in the Garden of Eden anymore. They are in the wilderness, working and toiling by the sweat of their brow to make a living, and yet God's goodness allows them to propagate not the species, but to procreate and bring forth new life. God gives them the opportunity to be co-creators in this thing called the creative order. Yes, it is God who does the miraculous work of taking the egg and the sperm and working them together and multiplying them and dividing them and knitting the body together in the mother's womb. But she knows that God is using her to bring forth a new life. With the help of the Lord, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. Who's the older one? Cain. The younger is Abel. Younger brothers are annoying, aren't they? As we shall see. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. Both of those are reputable um, professions, vocations. Being a farmer working the ground is no less advantageous than being a farmer who works cattle or livestock. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. And Abel brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now, there are so many different scholarly insights as to why Cain's was rejected and Abel's was accepted, but I think a clear reading of the text can show you why. Okay, and I've said this before in previous sermons on this same passage. What does Cain present? Some of his crops. What does Abel present? The best and the first. Have you ever been given leftovers by somebody? You're like, I didn't really want this. Here, you take it. Is it different in receiving a gift that way versus saying, I went and I found the best thing for you. 
I really look. I mean, I worked hard, and, and I, I just, I thought of you, and this is what I want to give you. Which gift is better to you? To, which gift is better to receive? Anyone? Okay, like, I don't really care. Gifts aren't my love language. Uh, all right, whatever. But we all can relate to getting a gift that somebody has spent time and effort because they were thinking specifically about us. Abel spends time going through his flocks, the firstborn of his flocks, and he says, oh, I've got to find the best ones for God. Got to find the, the first and the best. I mean, if I take the first, then... I'm putting myself first, so I'm not going to do that. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to get the best and give it to God. Now, it doesn't mean Cain is a horrible person, okay? Keep, keep this in mind. But Cain didn't take as much time and effort in finding the first and the best. We don't know if he took the first of the harvest and had a banquet and just really had a party with it and then gave later on God some of what he had, some of the leftovers, we don't know. But we are told specifically that Cain gave some, Abel gave the best and the first. And I think that's why Abel's was accepted and Cain's was rejected. Again, so many other scholars give you different opinions on this passage. That's what I think. That's Brandon's interpretation, all right? But God says, after he sees that Cain is angry and dejected, have you ever noticed your child being angry or dejected? No. Or yeah, whatever. You're like, suck it up, buttercup. No. Typically, a good parent says, all right, come on, tell me what's going on. Why are you so upset? What, what, what's, what's in your craw? I mean, you don't say that. That's where I'm from. That's what we say. You got a hitch in your giddy up. What's wrong with you, right? What's the problem? Why are you so angry? Why are you so angry? The Lord asked. Why do you look so dejected? And if you're Cain, you're probably like, are you serious? Did you not? You were there. Did you not see what just happened? You rejected my offering. And you're asking me? You ever do this with God? When you, you ever said this? But God, I do so much for you. I mean, I go to church, I give my offering, I sing the songs, and I sing them with a heart of love. I serve at the local this or that. I do this thing for my neighbor, and I never ask for anything in return. And are you kidding me? You ever said that? You ever thought that? Why are you so angry? Why are you so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what's right. It's like salt in the wound, right? But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. We think that God is saying, if you do what's right with regard to the offering, but God knows what's going on in Cain's mind because he's angry and dejected. Who's he angry at and why is he dejected? 
Well, I think it's a two-part anger issue. He's angry at God, but I also think he's angry at Abel because of what happens next in the story. If he wasn't angry at Abel, he wouldn't have gone to the length to take his brother. Hey, let's go into the fields. You want to go, little fella? And then kill him in the middle of the field. He's angry. But God is not getting on to him about the offering as much as don't give in to what's in your heart right now. You're angry and dejected. And when you get to that place, if you do what's right, it's going to be okay. You can be angry and dejected all you want as long as it doesn't lead you to a place to act out of your anger in a way that is destructive. Be careful, sin's crouching at your door. And it wants to devour you. But you must subdue it and be its master, not the other way around. But then we're told, verse 8, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. Where does Cain work? Now, of course, Abel works in the fields with his flocks. But Cain takes Abel into his territory. Isn't that what we do? When sin is crouching at our door, we try to coax people into our environment. <laughs> That's what sin does best. It's a magnet. It's a glue that tries to stick to other people. It, this is one of the, the lies of the devil who's, who says this. Well, if it doesn't hurt anybody else. <laughs> your sin has a ripple effect, not just on you, but those around you. When you give in to it, you may believe that it's not going to hurt anybody else, but I guarantee you it always does and it always will. So let's go out to the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, they didn't have guns in those days. They had rudimentary implementations to till and work the ground. My guess is we aren't told how. It could have been by his bare hands. It could have been an inanimate object he took. Whatever happened, he slayed Abel in the field. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? Do you see a reflection in what just happened in Genesis 3? The Lord, the Adam and Eve hear the Lord coming, and where do they go? They hide. What did Cain do with his brother? He hid his brother. Where's Cain? Where is your brother? And what's Cain's response? I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? See, God knows where, Cain, or where Abel is. Just like he knew where Adam and Eve were. He was trying to get them to confess it of their own will. Just as we parents are saying, did you do this? So, I'm sorry, where's that one thing? Where, where's the vase that used to sit on that stand over there? Oh, it was his fault. Right? Where's your brother, Cain? Have you seen him? I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? I'm my brother. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to take care of him? I'm sure, he's a younger brother and all, but is he my responsibility? 
But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, can't you hear it? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, indicating that more than likely, Cain could have hid the body in the ground. Now, the blood from the massacre seeped into the soil, but where's Abel's body? It's hidden, but not from God. We can't hide anything from God. Now, you were cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. Genesis 3, none of the humans are cursed. Adam is not cursed in the punishment cycle, neither is Eve. Did you know that? The only living creature that is cursed is the serpent in Genesis 3. But now, wait a minute, let me back up. What's cursed in Genesis 3 with regard to humans? A woman's She's not cursed, but she will feel the increase of childbirth. She will desire to control her husband, is how the text should read, but he will rule over her. There will be a battle for vying for hierarchy. They will be fighting and warring against each other. That never happens in marriage. But then what does he tell Adam? The ground is cursed because of you. You will work and toil by the sweat of your brow all of your days to eke by a living from that. And then when you die, you will become the soil again. How was Adam created? Of the dust of the ground. Now Cain, we get to Genesis 4, we find the first curse against a human. That doesn't seem fair. Why would God curse him? Now I want you to follow along with me. Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you no matter how hard you work. Do you see the punishment now? He's going to have to pretty much be a beggar. He's not going to be able to have a garden, crops, or anything like that. He's going to have to ask other people for grain and bread. He's going to have to rely on other people because the ground that he used to work, that was his livelihood, is now taken from him because he's cursed. And the ground, which reflects or feels or has absorbed, if you will, his brother's blood by his own hands, will not produce for him. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Now, if you go on down and finish chapter 4, you'll find out Cain actually had descendants. And his descendants had descendants and so on and so forth. And so Cain and his lineage was never wiped out. That is the mercy of God. But Cain gets a little frustrated. And now he's a bit panic-stricken And he says, my punishment is too great for me to bear. I mean, you're kidding me, right? I don't know how to do anything else but this. I I, I worked the ground, and now you're telling me it's not going to produce for me? It's too hard for me. And in addition, (laughs) in addition to that, I'm sorry, where am I? You've banished me from the land, from your presence. 
You've made me a homeless wanderer. Anybody who finds me will kill me. Can I ask you a question? Who were the people that would kill Cain? Okay, incest was okay in that day until, I know it's weird, okay? Just hear me out. Who did they marry? Did Adam and Eve only have Cain and Abel? No. They would only show the male lineages. And they wouldn't always show every male. Only the ones who were highlighted becomes the specific things. How long did Adam and Eve live? 800, 900 years old, right? All right? How many kids do you think you can have in that time? I mean, my grandmother was one of 11 children in the, in the, I don't know, she was born in 1925, okay? That was just the 20th century. And in America, during her life, she lived to be 90 before she passed. Now, a little bit over 90, but, and she, and she had six of her own kids, Imagine if you were able to produce kids because the genetics were a little different back in those days. You could live longer. How many children could you produce? Male and female offspring. And now imagine those male and female offspring having more male and female offspring over several hundred years. Who was Cain worried was going to kill him? He was worried that his family, who knew Abel... And had found out, the word got out, that he had killed his brother. They were going to take vengeance. It's everyone knows everyone. If the word gets out that I've killed him, and they see that I can't make a living, and I can't even, how am I going to be a beggar to even other family members who now hate me because of Abel? Do you catch the predicament Cain's in now? What's going to happen to me? Anyone who finds me now will kill me to take vengeance on the death of Abel. Can I tell you the goodness of God is still intact? Look at the mercy of God in the next verse. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment on anyone who kills you. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn everyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay? I'm not going to read beyond that point. We're going to stop there because here's what I want you to understand this morning. Oh, let's get to Romans really quickly. Paul reflects on a lot of this stuff in the book of Romans. Listen to what he says. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone will see that you're honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with that. Do you do everything you can to live at peace with everyone? (laughs) I don't either until the Holy Spirit convicts me. He's like, you're not trying to live in peace. You're just like, well, I'm not trying to live not in peace. You're right. I don't like them. When he's saying try to live in peace with everyone. He's saying actively pursue peace. He's not saying actively try to stay away from that person. Now, I'm not, you, Brandon, you don't know my situation. No, I don't. I really don't. But I know peacemakers actively pursue peace. 
as much as it depends on you, you should work to live at peace with one another. Once you've tried to push in enough and you realize it's not working, it's okay to step back. But if that person ever comes to you, guess what you should be willing to do? Be reconciled. All right? Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Have you ever felt like it? Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Do you have righteous anger? We can justify that we have righteous anger, but the reality is if somebody has ticked me off, the last thing I'm thinking is righteous anger. I might say I'm a Christian and I can justify that it's righteous anger, but that's my sinful nature trying to pull me into a snare to get me to do something I shouldn't do because sin, guess what, crouches at my door. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God for the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads, not because you're trying to shame them, but because the very nature of your kindness, goodness, and the peace that is within you naturally does that. Okay? And then this verse, don't let this slide by. Don't let evil conquer you. Don't let the sin that crouches at your door consume you, but conquer evil by doing what? Doing good. Here's the point. The only hope for good to succeed is to overcome evil with good. So how do we deal with the sin that crouches at our door? Biblical scholar and author Wilbur Williams explains that the crouching at the door verse is a metaphor, and it is extremely vivid. The picture is that of a wild beast poised at the opening of its lair, ready to leap on anyone. We have a cat at home, and he's not as bad as a lot of cats. All you cat lovers out there. Does your cat ever wait lurking with his tail twitching like this? And then you come right by and he just grabs on and will not let go, claws bared, clutching into your flesh. It's great fun, isn't it? This word for crouching is also a word that can be translated as lurking. Sin is lurking in the shadows. Guess what? When sin lurks in the shadows, you're not aware of it. You might sense it, but you don't see it, right? Sin is lurking. He's given us this imagery. God is showing us that, listen, this is the nature of sin. It sneaks up on you. And it pounces at just the right moment to throw you off your guard. Why do you think Paul says in Ephesians, stand on guard? Resist who? Do you know most of us, especially in the church, and I'm not talking about North Maine, I'm talking about the worldwide global church of believers in Christ, we don't always stand on guard. More often than not, we walk around with our defenses down. And you know what happens to a people who walk around with their defenses down in a world that is broken and fallen and full of sin and evil? What happens when God's people walk around 
with their defenses down. Do you see what's happening to the church in our culture today? Anyone? The church isn't just on the downslope of spirituality and truth. Most churches, are, many, many churches are closing their doors. Do you know why? It's because they have let their defenses down and they bought into the lie that just high-sounding nonsense and empty philosophy is what we should be a part of. We just need people to come into the building. Hmm. That doesn't sound like anything I read in Scripture. It just doesn't. This is great. I love a packed house. It does a pastor's heart good. But in the grand scheme of eternity, do you know what matters most to God? Is that people come to him in full surrender. And listen, God needs workers for the harvest. Am I correct? But pastor, I don't have the degrees you have. I don't have the boldness to stand on a stage. I don't care. And neither does he. Has he given you lips? Eyes, ears? Well, if you're blind, okay. Has he given you other things? Do you still have breath in your lungs? Then you have purpose. You've heard me preach this from the pulpit a lot. And I'm not negating my responsibility as a pastor when I tell you this, but pastors should be going out of a job. Because pastors that are worth their weight in salt are ones who truly empower the people to be the hands and the feet of Christ. Pastors, evangelists, prophets, and I'm missing several of them. Some of you would know that. Yeah, evangelists, teachers, pastors, prophets, apostles, so on and so forth. They have been the ones who have been given the authority to equip the saints for ministry. I'm doing a poor job if you think that it's my job to save every soul. First off, it's God's job to save souls. It's all of our jobs to bring people into the presence of Christ. So, when we are willing to be obedient to Christ regardless of our credentials, regardless of our physical circumstance, regardless of what we may have to offer or may not have to offer, God can take whatever we offer, multiply it for his good and his purposes, and overcome evil with good. The sin that crouches at the door of many people's hearts can be overcome, subdued, and mastered in order that the gospel can advance. Sin crouches at the door. Do you know what 1 Peter says? Stay alert. 1 Peter chapter 5. Stay alert. Watch out. Your great enemy, the devil, he prowls like a lion, a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Justice chapter earlier in Genesis with the crafty and shrewd serpent lurking around in the garden near where the man and the woman were, evil was knocking at their door. <laughs> Did God really say that if you eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, you'll die? 
And the woman accurately said, no, that's not what God said. He says, if we eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Well, which one? There are two trees in the middle of the garden. Tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He just said, if we eat from the one in the middle of the garden or even touch it, we'll die. Oh, that's not what God, you're not going to die. Go ahead, have some. And she looked at it and she said, man, that is a beautiful tree. That's what it says. She looked at the tree, saw that it was beautiful. Guess what sin masks or masquerades is looking like? Sin is so tempting that next bottle of wine that somebody who can't handle their alcohol and is prone to alcoholism is like, well, this, oh, that looks so good. You ever said that? Or, 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 or maybe you aren't prone to addictive behaviors by chemical or, or liquid addiction. Maybe it's something else. Could be pornography. It could just be looking with lust upon another person without even looking at pornography, and you're like, oh, they are, they are good looking. Right? Looking and seeing something's beautiful and believing that the, it, it's delicious to have. Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. You're going to try to, you want that forbidden fruit. Don't open that door. Do not even crack. Don't even take a peek to see what's scratching and lurking there. Don't do it. So what does God do? Sin's crouching. God warns. God warns. God always warns. God is a good God. And a good God always warns and shows us the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing to do. He doesn't say, well, they'll figure it out. And if they mess up, then that'll be a lesson learned. <laughs> no. As God is a loving father, as he always does with his children or with people who he loves, he says, listen, I know what you're thinking, but you need to change your thinking. I know what you're feeling, and I'm not trying to negate your feelings, but those feelings, if left unchecked, will lead you down a path of destruction. Okay, you get your feelings in check, get your emotions in check, check your feelings and emotions against the truth. Okay? Feel all you want to feel, but don't give in to the temptation of those feelings to lead you down a path of destruction. Okay? God keeps us in check. God warns Cain that what awaits him at the door of his heart desires to what? Devour him. <laughs> Horror movies are based on this. Have you ever seen the Jurassic Park movies? Isn't it cool <laughs> when T-Rex just kind of wow, devours something? Isn't that the greatest feeling ever? You see half a torso just kind of standing there. Isn't that great? No. no, it's not, because it's not supposed to be. This devouring imagery is meant to kind of strike terror. All right? Again, I use this analogy and have been for the past month. We tell our kids, don't, don't put your hand on the stove. Why? We're warning them. Sometimes it's going to be off, but sometimes it's going to be on. And so the best remedy for not getting burned is don't touch it at all. 
right? So as a good parent, I'm not trying to keep my kid from having fun. I'm trying to protect them from danger. Because I know if they touch it, they're probably going to get burned. Eventually, I'm not saying, again, you can touch it if you want, and you can't touch it if you don't want. God's not giving an option. He's saying, don't do this. I'm not giving you an option. You have the choice, but I'm not giving you the option. I'm warning you, you do this, it's going to go really bad. But if you do this, it's going to be really good. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be good. Okay? That's what's happening in this scenario again. Don't open that door. Sin is crouching there, and it wants to devour you. Rather, what God does is he directs him to master the sin that eagerly wants to consume him. What happens when you master sin? That means it no longer has control over you. Think of the terms of slavery and masters. We don't like to do that because it's not politically correct today, and we're not woke if we talk about it. But the reality is, if we look at the master-slave paradox here or idea here, what do we see? What does the master always do? The master lords over that which it has control, which it has subdued. Why is God using this language with with Cain? Sin wants to consume you. Basically, it wants to be your master. How many of you have ever been mastered by sin? I will raise my hand and be the first to admit that. I have been mastered by sin. I have let it devour me before. But God says, I want you to be its master. I want you to put it in its place. I want you to tell it what to do. I want it to be your slave, not your master. Because if it's the other way around, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good at all. And so what does God leave us with? He does inevitably leave us with a choice, even though he warns us that the one choice will devour us. Sometimes, actually, let me put it this way, all the time, the road to freedom in a fallen world is not easy. The road to goodness is fraught with difficulty. This is why not many people take it. Matthew's, uh, in Matthew, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What, is, what does Jesus tell us about the path that leads to him? What is it? Is it wide and many people take it? No, it's narrow. And the gate to get onto that path, it's narrow. Um, I'm not as narrow as I used to be. And so when I get into places that have turnstiles or different things, I have to kind of shimmy now, right? You ever do that? I would rather shimmy into the kingdom than take the path that is wide that leads to destruction. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, you, you have the choice. Paul tells us um, in the New Testament that you're free to do whatever you want, but not all things are beneficial for you. Do you know what he's saying? He's not saying as a Christian, go do whatever you want to. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, legitimately, you have the choice. You can do whatever you want. However, there are consequences for what you want to do. That means that not all things are beneficial for you. Only those things that are good and righteous and holy and that come from God and that God desires of you are good for you. So choose those things that are beneficial. Resist the other things that are not. Stand against them. Master them. Subdue them. Don't let them control you. Biblical scholar Don Gowan carries this idea about this choice being ours a little bit further. Listen to what he writes. The story says God did not accept Cain or his offering. Okay, let's go back to that for a minute. Adopting the position of those who believe themselves to be mistreated by God. But the story goes on to insist that God is still there attempting to dialogue with Cain. If God was truly rejecting Cain, would God continue to dialogue with him? So what does God do after the offering is rejected and Cain is now angry and dejected? God doesn't go, oh well, he should have known better. See, that's a picture I think many of us get in our minds. We've made a choice, or maybe we've not even made a choice, and we just feel like we've been dealt a bad hand. Remember, like I was talking earlier? And we picture God up there, crossed arms, saying, oh, well, so good, uh, whatever, so much for you. What, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Figure it out. Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt like God was just saying, you know what? You made your bed, and I lie in it. The God of the Old Testament gets a bad rap for being a vengeful, wrathful God. But do you see the goodness of God who continues to pursue? Hey, Cain, listen, buddy. Why are you so angry and dejected? If you just do what's right, you'll be accepted. God knows what's in the heart of every individual. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He doesn't look, oh, this person gave me this and this person did this. Do you know that Jesus scolds those who pray on street corners, repeating over and over these words and prayers because they're just showing off? Are those that bring great hordes of money into the temple with fanfare? Woo, look, they're bringing a million-dollar check for a new building project, and we're going to put their name on the building. Cain, I'm looking at your heart right now, and I, I know you're contemplating something you shouldn't be contemplating at all. But if you open the door of your heart to that decision you're toying around with making to kill your brother, it's not going to go well. <clears throat> you may get some quick temporary satisfaction in the heat of that moment, but I promise you it will lead straight to the pit of hell. 
Do not let it consume you. You've got to master this. You've got to control that which is an urge in you, stoked by anger. You've got to control it. Master it before it masters you. The choice is yours, but I'm begging you to choose my way and not yours. Listen to these verses. Ephesians 4, verse 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do you see what Paul's saying? Are we allowed to be angry? Yeah. But in our anger, what are we not to do? Where does sin start? In here, in the mind, and in here, the heart. See, I can be angry about a situation or a circumstance, but guess what I often allow that anger to do in my mind and in my heart? I begin to act out that anger toward a person or a group in my mind. Politics, anybody? Republican, Democrat? Have you ever said evil things about another candidate? In your heart, on social media, guess what you're doing? Why James tells us, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, there's condemnation and judgment up here on the front. <laughs> Figure it out, I don't know. You can ask them later, all right? But let's be honest with ourselves. What does James say? What does he say about the tongue? Anyone? It is set on fire by what? By a candle. By a strike of a match. It's set on fire by hell. That's what James says. The tongue is set on fire by hell. What does he mean? He said, how dare we, as children of God, Bless God in one breath with the same tongue and then curse another person, not a brother or sister in Christ. Curse a person created in the image of Almighty God. That'll preach. But it's not a fun sermon. It's not one that gets people just rushing through the door. You know what I'm saying? Wait a minute. I know we're not to curse our brothers and sisters in Christ, but dead gum, that, that Joe Biden, he's a walking zombie. What am I doing with my lips? My tongue? I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes. I do it too. Or when we talk about the other political side, Donald Trump, he just... Ooh, we're going to hell in a handbasket if we get old Donnie in there again. Do you think God really cares? Some of you are probably saying yes, but let me counter that really quickly. The enemy in Genesis 3 do you remember what we said about him last week? The scripture says he is crafty. He is shrewd. Do you know what that means? He is able to take something that is good and positive and just tweak it just, just a smidge and make it 
the furthest thing from the truth. But man, it sure looks like the truth. You may not like what the person in the office of president or in their cabinet is doing. It may be completely antithetical and counter to God's purposes and principles. But when we actually look at what scripture says about those situations, I don't mean this to be a political sermon, but the reality is when we have in our hearts the sin crouching at our door and we want to lash out with venom that does not come from God then what are we doing by opening the door of our heart to the venom that comes from our mouths? I want to be a conduit of God's grace and mercy. I don't want to allow my thoughts, my, my feelings and emotions to control what I say. I want the Holy Spirit in me to be that who controls what I speak and what I say. Romans 7 and 8, Paul talks about the contrast between Adam and Christ, between the sin nature and the Spirit of God. And he says, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, you're going to do what the Spirit of God desires, not what your sinful nature desires. Church, hear me clearly today. The choice is ours. We can be above reproach or we can be in the weeds of attack. But we need to be standing guard against the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And he won't come in an affront against you, square at your face. He'll speak those words in your ears. Oh, that so-and-so is a horrible person, aren't they? Don't you wish that something bad would happen? Don't you wish that they would get what's coming to them? Don't you hope they die? Don't you hope that they trip and fall and break their neck? Don't you hope something would happen horrible to them? Be careful. Sin crouches at the door. We ourselves are prone to become Cain if we're not careful. Even if we think we're justified. Be careful. Sin crouches and desires to devour you. As our worship team comes forward, let me close with this. In his book, The Principle of the Path by Andy Stanley, and I don't know what you think about Andy Stanley. Don't shut me off at this point if you don't like him, all right? Just hear me out. He puts this in his book. I think it's a great example. Every whitewater kayaker will tell you the time to scout a rapid is when you're a safe distance away. Okay? Only a fool would ignore the danger. How many of you have been to Ohio Pile and gone down the raft, you know, the river on the, right? Do you know those guides have already been down that river, but before they ever went down that river once, somebody else had to eventually go and show where the pitfalls are, where the danger points are. So do you know what he's saying here is every good kayaker, every good whitewater rafter, every good guide will do their due diligence not to just say, y'all hop in the raft. We're going to figure it out as we go. No, they will actually walk the bank or they'll, they'll stay in the kayak in the boat when it's calm water. They will go toward the shore in calm water when they see rapids coming. They will dock on the bank and walk down and check out the terrain. Church, we need to be doing this. We need to be doing this in Butler and wherever we are. 
checking out the terrain. Where are the pitfalls, the danger spots? We're still going to go down the rapids, but we need to know where the tricky spots are so that we won't be caught off guard and we won't be devoured by that whirlpool, by that undercurrent. He says, what's true for navigating white water applies to navigating our lives. Ignore the signs, pay the price. When it dawns on you that you're addicted, it's not the time to start thinking about more accountability or increased discipline. It's too late for that. When your credit cards are full and you're afraid to check the answering machine, that's not the time to consider developing a budget or altering your spending habits. When your spouse serves you with divorce papers, that's not the time to begin to think, we should work on our marriage. It's a little too late for that. When the pregnancy test reads positive, that's not your time to start reevaluating the soundness of your moral confidence or whether he's really the right kind of guy for you. We all have a choice. What choice is the one you're going to make? What choices have you made? It's still not too late. Maybe you have been devoured. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're in the midst of that T-Rex clamping down on you. You can get out of it, but you can't do it in your own strength. You can cry out, God, help me. I'm being devoured. Like you said I would be if I chose this path. I'm being devoured. Help me. Do you know what God will do? God is in the rescue business. He's not just in the warning business. He's in the rescue business. Do you know the greatest rescue of all human history? We celebrated it during communion today. If you cry out in the name of Jesus, he will come and lift you out of the darkest pit you've ever been in. He can help you conquer and subdue the sin in your life. But it, it requires for you to cry out in full surrender. I, I can't do this, God. Only you can do this. Help me. I've messed up so, so bad. How could you even forgive me? But you promised that you would, so I trust you. Take my life and let it be consecrated all to thee. And he does. And he pulls you up. And before he cleans you off, do you know what he does? <laughs> he holds you. Muck, dirt, grime, stink and all. And he says, you know, I love you. I've just been waiting on this. I've just been waiting on this moment. The choices you've made have put you in a bad spot. But the choice to choose me, oh, that's the best choice you could have made. Now, Let's go get cleaned up. Let's go get cleaned up. And he walks each step of the way to clean this piece and then that piece and then that piece. And he purges you of all of that that made you stink. And he presents you to his father. Lord, look. Father, look. It's another one of our children. This is great. 
I don't know where you are today, what's going on in your life, but I know there is a Lord who knows that about you. He knows where you've buried your brother Abel, if you will. And he desires to protect you just like he did Cain. I'm going to protect you even in the midst of your punishment because I still love you. And he wants you to come and choose him. Heavenly Father, in this place, we pray that you would be glorified. I don't know what baggage, what messes people have found themselves in that are in this place or maybe listening or watching at home or online. But you know, you know all. You know all the content of our hearts, our minds, our lives. You know where sin has tripped us up, where we've allowed it to devour. You know where we've opened doors we shouldn't have opened. But God, you are greater than the doors we've opened that have led away from you. Remind us, God, that your love covers a multitude of sin. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died a death we should have died, but rose to life to show us that in him, we too can have new life. We ask all this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.